0: Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, my name's Eric. I'll be reading you selections from the E edition of today's Cape Cod Times. Today's date is Tuesday, February 13th of 2024. We'll start with the weather, which is the story today. There's no doubt about that. Windy and colder with snow and rain falling across the Cape and Islands, 2 to 4 inches expected. Uh, Tonight, partly cloudy but clear. It should stop around 6 o'clock this evening and uh, start to clear up a little bit. Tomorrow will be sunny. Wednesday will be a high of 35 and a low of 17. Very chilly in the overnight tomorrow. Plenty of sun Thursday, still chilly. 36 degrees the high, 31 the low, and on Friday, breezy in the morning, otherwise sunshine. It warms up a little bit this weekend, high of 39, low of 21, and on Saturday, periods of snow mixing with rain, high of 34, a low of 25. It's concerning enough that they've actually written an article, and it's on the front page. Storm expected to dump snow across the northeast by Dinah Voiles Pulver of USA Today. A fast-moving storm pushing through the eastern half of the country could bring major disruptions to travel in the northeast through Tuesday. Widespread heavy snowfall was expected across northern Pennsylvania and southern New York late on Monday. Then in southern New England Tuesday morning, the Weather Prediction Center said late Sunday. Boston's the biggest city in the path of the storm, forecasters said, with up to a foot of snow possible. Schools in Boston are closed Tuesday. New York City also had a chance of getting significant impacts, said David Roth, a meteorologist with the Weather Prediction Center in College Park, Maryland. The probability of more than eight inches of snow ranged from seventy to ninety percent along a swath of the Pennsylvania New York border and across most of Massachusetts, according to the Weather Prediction Center. Winter storm advisories and warnings went into effect across Oklahoma, northern Arkansas, southern Missouri, and northern Kentucky. Areas across part of the southern Appalachians and the southern Mid-Atlantic faced a risk of excessive rainfall over Monday and into Tuesday with a chance for local flash flooding as the system moved through. An intensifying nor'easter along the coast was forecast to cause moderate coastal flooding at high tide along the Jersey Shore and portions of the New England coast. Onshore winds could push the ocean up into inland rivers and increase the chances for some coastal flooding, Roth said. The region's already seen at least two big coastal flood events this winter, as well as higher than normal tides over the weekend. Fortunately, the system will move quickly, reducing the risks, Roth said. This doesn't have the hallmarks of a record event. The storms will bring enhanced rainfall because there's a lot of moisture aloft flowing up over Mexico and moisture moving into the region from the Gulf of Mexico, Roth said. You're getting moisture from both oceans at multiple levels. And that's why we're experiencing some flash flooding. So be careful out there. It's going to be wet and snowy, and then it's going to get cold, and it's going to freeze. So for uh, walking on the sidewalks, etc., cetera, uh, please be careful. And you may want to uh, put booties on your service dog if you have one. Now that we've completed the weather, we'll go to uh, another section that we do, which is the lottery results. We do these because somebody asked for them. If there's something you would like read to the blind or those who are print disabled, you can email us at info at org. And you can also call us at 508-539-2030 and we'll consider reading whatever it is that you think we should be reading. And if you miss any of the information that we share, you can always go to audiblelocalledger.org and in the upper right corner is the Archived Readings tab. If you click on that, you'll find a week's worth of our newspaper readings. And under the Literature Readings, you'll also find Great Books and Literature, uh, that stays up there in perpetuity, so you can always go and hear something there for your entertainment. All of that is bl- is free for the blind and the print disabled at audiblelocalledger.org, the archived readings tabs. And we go to the masslottery.com website to get the latest results for the lottery. For Monday, February 12th, the midday drawing numbers game results were 2-2. 3, 8. Again, the midday drawing yesterday, 2238. The evening drawing last night for Monday, February 12th, 3059. 3059. Powerball numbers for Monday, February 12th, 17, 36, 43, 53, and 67, with 14 the bonus number. Mass cash numbers for Monday, February 12th. 5, 6, 21, 31, and 32. bucks for Monday, February 12th. 5, 11, 15, 18, 35, and 44. And Lucky for Life rounds out our lottery results for Monday, February 12th. 3, 12, 18, 39, and 44. With 7, the bonus number. Good luck to all who play remember us if you win. The headline reads, Once a gas station, 725 Main Street in Hyannis will have a new role by 2025, by Susan Vaughan. If you're driving west on Main Street in Hyannis, where the commercial area ends, you can't help but notice on the left a huge crane and tall metal piles enclosed in a large lot that was until recently an open grassy space or traveling west, you may not drive past the site at 725 Main Street because you're being diverted at Stephen Street onto North Street because of the construction. The excavation for and construction of a new $12.9 million sewer pump station began January 25th and it will continue for the next 18 months, town engineer Griffin Bedoin explained at an informational meeting Thursday in Barnstable Town Hall. It's beyond its useful life, and it's time to rehab, Bodoin said. What is the traffic diversion or neighborhood disruption going to be? The traffic disper- diversions are expected to be in two sections of work along Main and South Streets and should be completed in March and April. The work hours on the project are 8.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. Thursday's meeting was listed as a neighborhood meeting. However, only one woman who lives in the neighborhood attended and asked questions about the traffic diversions that began Wednesday. The other two attendees were Town Councilor Felicia Penn, who represents the 13th Precinct where the work's occurring, and Elizabeth Werfbane, Executive Director of the Hyannis Main Street Business Improvement District. Werfbane said she had informed all of the business owners in the district of the pending work, and they were invited to the meeting. She said she had received a couple of complaints about the vibrations from the site earlier, but received none on Thursday. Having anticipated concerns about the noise and vibrations, Kelly Cullopy, communications manager for the Town Department of Public Works, said staff members have gone door-to-door talking with residents and businesses in person. She said she had received only a couple of calls about vibrations and the traffic changes, and none from the closest homes to the site on Dumont Drive, which parallels the project site. What's the sewer pump station? The reason for the $12.9 million project is to rehabilitate an existing small pump station on the other side of Main Street that was built in 1972 for the sewers in that area of town. It can't meet peak existing or future flows. And there's not enough space on the 30 by 30 foot easement, Bowden said. A replacement was done on the old pump in 2020, but the new pipe was still undersized, he said. The new station will expand the service area and address capacity concerns, especially on South Street to C Street, where new pipes will be installed next year. If unaddressed, it would restrict growth in the growth incentive zone, Bowden said. The purpose of the 2018 Downtown Hyannis Growth Incentive Zone, known as GIZ, is to encourage a concentrated mix of residential and commercial uses within Hyannis, while ensuring that all growth is properly served by adequate infrastructure, according to town materials. What's the history of the pumping station? Plans for the new pumping station at 725 Main Street began in 2002 when the town acquired the one-and-a-quarter-acre plot that formerly held a gas station and acquired two easements for the siting of the sewer infrastructure, Bowdoin explained. The new station will be on one-third of the site at 15,000 square feet, with 1,800 square feet for an access driveway on the east side of the site. What will the area look like when completed? The tall pilings that are now visible will be sunk 30 to 40 feet into the ground in the next two to three weeks, where all the piping, odor control systems, and other instruments for operating the station will be housed, Bowden said. The underground area will also be sealed off from water leakage. The station, visible above ground, will look much like a typical Cape Cod house with cedar shingles and shutters. We wanted it to look nice, not industrial, Bowden said. The building will be 45 feet by 40 feet. A large replacement retaining wall along Dumont Drive will be installed and extend around the new building. The rest of the site will be returned to a more natural state and an existing sculpture on the site will remain. The landscaping has not been decided, Bowdoin said. What's the schedule for the sewer pump station? The foundation of the new pump station is to be completed by June, utility work completed by July, and the structure built through the summer into the fall, according to the presentation at the meeting. Work inside to install equipment should be complete around May of 2025, and final paving done in September of 2025 with the final project completed by November of 2025. People in the area will be notified when there's a shutdown of service, according to town officials. The road construction impacts and dates include Main Street to Potter Avenue, now underway to be completed in March. South Street from Main to Newton Streets completed in April. Dumont Drive pipes to be laid starting in November, and South Street from Newtown Street to C Street, to be completed in May of 2025. All the current road work will be done by Memorial Day, and none will be done during the summer, Bowdoin said. A town employer and a consultant are on the site every day to answer questions from motorists, and vibration monitoring will be in place throughout construction, according to town officials. The project bid to RJV construction was $10.8 million. The project is funded by the town's Water Pollution Control Program, and it's paid for by the users, Bowden said. The town also has received grants and low-interest loans and anticipates a 25% subsidy on the project from the Cape Cod and Islands Water Protection Fund, he said. And as we have head into the paper, there's more about the weather. Winter Storm Watch issued for Cape Cod by Eric Williams. A fast-moving storm is expected to hit Cape Cod Tuesday, Today, bringing snow, high winds, and possible coastal flooding to the area. It's going to pack a punch, said Alan Dunham, meteorologist at the National Weather Service Boston Norton office. The National Weather Service has issued a winter storm watch, an infect from late Monday night through late Tuesday night. Dunham said precipitation on Cape Cod was expected to begin as rain or as a rain-snow mix between 3 to 5 a.m., and I'm reading this around 6 a.m. on Tuesday, and uh, sure enough, it is rainy and it is uh, sleety, so I'm sure this is going to change over. That uh, did happen. Um, that started really around 3.30 or 4 o'clock this morning. Uh, I noticed. It began as a rain-snow mix between 3 to 5 a.m., with a changeover to heavy, wet snow by around 8 a.m. The heaviest snowfall on the Cape is expected to occur between about 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., according to Dunham, wherein snowfall rates could reach 1 to 2 inches an hour. Areas near the Cape Cod Canal could see roughly 4 to 8 inches of snow, with snow total amounts tapering off to 1 to 3 inches on the outer Cape. National Weather Service has also issued a high wind warning for the Cape and Islands in effect from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. on Tuesday. North winds from 25 to 35 miles per hour are expected with gusts up to 60 miles per hour. The strongest winds are expected to occur between 1 p.m. and 7 p.m. Tree and power line damage is possible as well as power outages according to the National Weather Service. A coastal flood warning is in effect from noon to 5 p.m. on Tuesday for the Cape and Islands. According to the National Weather Service, two to three feet of inundation above ground level is expected in low-lying areas near shorelines and tidal waterways. Minor to moderate erosion is also possible on the Cape and Islands. The Hyannis forecast from the National Weather Service reads Tuesday... Snow, possibly mixed with rain becoming all snow afternoon. The snow could be heavy at times. A high will be near 36 degrees. It'll be windy with a northeast wind 16 to 21 miles per hour, increasing to 26 to 31 miles per hour in the afternoon. Winds could gust as high as 55 miles an hour. The chance of precipitation is 100%. It is going to be wet today. New snow accumulation of 3 to 5 inches is possible. On Tuesday night, snows likely mainly before 8 p.m. The snow could be heavy at times, cloudy during the early evening, then gradual clearing with a low around 24. It'll be windy with a northwest wind 23 to 28 miles an hour, decreasing to 15 to 20 miles per hour after midnight. Winds could gust as high as 43 miles per hour. The chance of precipitation is 60%. New snow accumulation of around an inch is possible. Wednesday mostly sunny, Wednesday night mostly clear, and Thursday sunny. Moving on in the paper to the Cape and Islands section, Barnstable High School opens Red Hawks Food Pantry by George Costinos as a special to the Cape Cod Times. Barnstable High School, in conjunction with Stop and Shop and several Cape Cod community organizations, took a major step toward providing consistent access to food for students and families in need. The Red Hawks Food Pantry, located at the high school, is now open, with an official ribbon-cutting ceremony that was held Monday. The Stop and Shop School Food Pantry Program presented Barnstable Public Schools with a check for $35,000. The funding was donated, said Jennifer Barr, Director of Community Relations at Stop and Shop, to get the food pantry set up and off the ground. She said this is one of the more than 220 in-school food pantries that Stop and Shop supports. Stop and Shop reported that it hopes that number will increase to more than 250 by the end of 2024, according to a statement. What's the history of the food pantry? During the COVID-19 pandemic, it became increasingly obvious that many people in the community were having difficulty feeding their families, Dave Bedeau, District Food and Nutrition Director for Barnstable Public Schools, said. The rates of students in need was increasing, as was the number of homeless, he said. of the students in Barnstable are food insecure, which means they don't have consistent access to food, going without dinner, and coming to school hungry because they had no breakfast, said Barr. Clearly, that impacts the students' ability to focus and thrive in school, she said. Badeau said that in 2017, 32% of the students qualified for free and reduced lunch. Now it's up to 59%, almost double that. While many students already received breakfast and free lunch, Sarah Ahern, superintendent of Barnstable Public Schools, said, their needs extended beyond the school day and the school year. And based on those statistics, Badeau said he came up with the idea of a food pantry and looked for a partner to make a difference in the community. The Cape Cod Commercial Fishermen's Alliance, Cape Abilities, Chatham Harvesters Cooperative and Cape Cod Cooperative Extension, a Barnstable County agency, joined in. The food pantry at the high school is behind the main cafeteria, and it's supervised by Bedeau. Shelves line a small room and hold canned goods, peanut butter, jams, condiments, cereals, applesauce, pasta sauce, juices, ramen noodles, and other non-perishable items. Fresh produce and other foods are also available. Badeau worked with the guidance counselors at the schools to identify students and families that would be eligible for food pantry services. At this time, 70 families are using the pantry services. Those families fill out a shopping list online, and volunteers do the shopping at the pantry fill the lists, which are numbered for anonymity. Parents then drive to the school where the volunteers give them the food. Shauna Redands, who works in the food services department at Barnstable High School, has a son at Hyannis West Elementary School. She's also a recipient of the food pantry services. I come here every morning. All the people here are very nice, and they're always smiling happy. It's, It's truly amazing, Redan said. And so is the food. I look in the box, and there's always something different, fresh produce. And I say, what do we have this week, Redan said. I made fresh kale soup, and I made chili for the Super Bowl. It was great. And that's all the local news that is in today's Cape Cod Times, dated Tuesday, February 13th of 2024. Moving on to the uh, national, international, and bigger news stories. Defense Secretary Back in Hospital Transfers Powers by Tom Vandenbroek. In Washington, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was rushed to the hospital Sunday for symptoms of an emergent bladder issue. Less than a month after his previous secret stay at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center sparked controversy. Austin, who's 70 years old, was taken back to Walter Reed by a security detail at 2.20 p.m. on Sunday, according to Air Force Major General Pat Ryder, the Pentagon press secretary. Just before 5 p.m., he transferred his authority to Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks. He remained at the hospital Sunday evening, Ryder said. Unlike his previous hospitalization that began January 1st, Austin notified the White House, Congress, and Pentagon officials, Ryder said in a statement. Earlier Sunday, Ryder said that Austin had retained his authority, noting that he had the secret communications systems necessary to perform his duties. Austin was taken by ambulance to Walter Reed on January 1st after complaining of severe pain. He had developed complications from surgery for prostate cancer on on December 22nd, according to his doctors. He failed to notify the White House, Congress, and key staffers at the Pentagon of his diagnosis. Austin's staff sought to keep his ambulance ride under the radar as well, according to a transcript of the 911 call that was obtained by USA Today. A staff member asked the dispatcher to approach his house in the northern Virginia suburbs without sirens or flashing lights to keep it subtle. Doctors at Walter Reed placed him in intensive care for four days, a fact that Austin kept secret. He eventually transferred his authority to Hicks. Austin, at a February 1st news conference, apologized for trying to conceal his illness and subsequent hospitalization. He called the diagnosis a gut punch and said his instinct was to keep his illness private. He said he took full responsibility for the mistake and added that he had not pressured his staff to withhold details. Pentagon officials recently completed a review of its policy regarding transfer of authority, Ryder said last week. Austin is reviewing that report before its release. In addition, the Pentagon Inspector General is investigating the matter, and Congress has called on Austin to testify about it. Austin's hospitalization comes at a pivotal moment as he prepares to meet key allies in Europe over aid to Ukraine in its defense of Russia's illegal invasion. Austin is scheduled to meet with allies providing military aid and with defense chiefs from NATO in Brussels. On Sunday, the Senate approved a foreign aid package that includes $60 billion to supply Ukraine with the weapons it needs to push back against Russia. The measure faces an uncertain future in the House where some GOP members oppose the financial assistance to Kyiv. NATO allies will also likely be concerned by comments from former President Donald Trump over over the weekend demeaning the value of the alliance the front-runner for the Republican nomination, Trump renewed a false criticism of how NATO was funded and said he might not defend European treaty members if they're attacked by Russia unless they had paid enough to satisfy him. Israeli raid frees two hostages in Rafah. Airstrikes providing cover for operation kill scores of Palestinians by John Bacon. Israeli security forces stormed an apartment in the heart of Rafa on Monday, freeing two hostages, killing their three militant guards, and an operation Gaza officials say cost scores of Palestinian lives. Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari, spokesman for the Israeli military, said Fernando, Simone Marman, and Louis Haar were, were in good condition at Sheba Tal Hashomer Medical Center near Tel Aviv. Har's son-in-law, Idan Begarano, visited with the released captives and said they were thin and pale, but aware of their surroundings. Video from the scene shows the joyous men wearing sweatsuits, holding long, tearful embraces with their relatives. Last night, we brought Luis and Fernando back home, Hagari said. This was a complex operation under fire in the heart of Rafa, based on very sensitive and high-quality intelligence. The strike team breached the apartment shortly before 2 a.m. They killed the guards and hugged and protected Luis and Fernanda with their bodies, Hagari said. The rescue drew militant fire from nearby buildings and intense firepower from the air was required, he said. Airstrikes that provided cover for the operation killed at least 67 Palestinians, Health Ministry spokesman Ashraf al-Kidra said. Israel has pressed its invasion of Gaza into Rafah." over the objections of neighboring Egypt, the U.S., U.N., and most global leaders who fear for more than one million Palestinians who fled to Rafah from fighting farther north. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Galant said the rescue operation was a turning point in the war. Galant spoke to members of the elite Israeli Yamam police unit, which led the raid that freed the hostages. Hamas is vulnerable and penetrable, he said in a translation by the Times of Israel. We still have hostages and we need to reach them, he said, adding that hopefully most will be freed through a peace deal. But how many more times will rescue be required, and under what circumstances? Who knows? Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu lauded the daring action of the rescue team and stressed his recurring theme that only continued military pressure will free the hostages. We will not miss any opportunity to bring them home, he said. Marman, who is 60, and Har, who is 70, had been seized from near Yitzhak, a kibbutz on the Gaza border during the October 7th attack by Hamas-backed militants. More than 1,200 people were killed and butchered. Over 240 were kidnapped and brought to Gaza in the attack that lasted a few hours. The subsequent military assault by Israel on Gaza has killed more than 28,000 Palestinians, That's according to the Gaza Health Ministry, which is Palestinian. Israel says 10,000 of them were militants and blames the civilian deaths on Hamas for using them as human shields. More than 12,300 Palestinian children and young teens have been killed since the war began again, according to the Hamas Health Ministry on Monday. Israel says about 100 hostages remain in Hamas captivity and the effort to rescue them remains a priority. The release of her and Marmon reunites them with three other abducted family members returned to Israel as part of the hostage release during the week-long ceasefire in November. Clara Marmon, 63, her sister Gabriela Leinberg, 59, and Gabriela's daughter, Mia, 17, who was taken and freed with her dog, Bella. All five were seized from a safe room at a family member's home in the kibbutz. al Qidra said rescuers were still searching rubble for more victims of the airstrikes. An Associated Press journalist counted 50 bodies that were taken to Abu Yusuf al-Najar hospital in Rafa. Resident Mohammed Zogrib said he saw a black jeep speeding through the Shibura refugee camp just before the airstrikes enveloped his neighborhood. We found ourselves running with our children from the airstrikes in every direction. A senior Biden administration official told the Associated Press on condition of anonymity that a ceasefire framework is mostly in place, but Hamas's Al-Aqsa television station cited an official for the militant group saying invading Rafah would scuttle the talks. In addition, the AP reported two Egyptian officials and a Western diplomat said Egypt threatened to suspend the Camp David Accords of the late 1970s if Israel sent troops into Rafah which could cause waves of trapped Palestinians to try to flee into Egypt's Sinai Peninsula. The Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte, in the Middle East for meetings Monday with Israel and Palestinian officials, joined the cavalcade of world leaders urging Israel to curtail its military mission in Gaza. Root listed three priorities, a massive increase in humanitarian aid for Gaza, release of all hostages, and a significant reduction in the intensity of Israeli military operations in Gaza. Root said a large-scale military operation in Rafah would have catastrophic humanitarian consequences. All this calls for an immediate pause in fighting, which must culminate in a lasting end to this conflict, Root said adding that the sustainable political solution is a viable Palestinian state next to a safe Israel. Lots more to come on that. If you had the Super Bowl on, this headline's relevant. Twins reunion voted top Super Bowl commercial by Gabe Leck. Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey appeared in a State Farm commercial earlier in these NFL playoffs but they were busy on Sunday night, so State Farm opted for another set of twins and ended up winning the hearts of Super Bowl viewers. Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito first paired in a 1988 box office smash, were reunited for State Farm's Super Bowl entry, and walked off with the top spot in USA Today's 36th ad meter contest. The 62nd spot featured Schwarzenegger playing a State Farm employee in an action film, rescuing puppies and a pregnant woman from a burning home. Yet the Austrian-born bodybuilder actor former California governor struggles to pronounce the insurance giant's tagline, giving his pal DeVito an opening to save the day in a surprise cameo. Like a Good neighbor, scored 6.68, outpointing Duncan's 6.52. Coffee Giants ad once again teamed actor Ben Affleck and wife Jennifer Lopez, joined by Affleck's Boston Bros, Tom Brady, and Matt Damon. In a commercial lineup that was dotted by megastars, most notably Beyoncé, whose Verizon spot dovetailed with the release of two new songs off a forthcoming album, it was Schwarzenegger, 76 years old, who carried the day. The Terminator, Predator, and Kindergarten Cop star remains popular across generations. He has 26 million Instagram followers, nearly double Mahomes and Kelsey combined, and he revived his action star iconography for this spot. I'm always there for him, DeVito, who's 79 years old, told USA Today, and he's always there for me. We have a great relationship. One year after a rookie entry, the farmer's dog, captured the ad meter crown, State Farm returned the title to a legacy advertiser. Duncan was followed in the top five by Kia, 6.36, Uber Eats, 6.26, and the NFL, 6.23, which, like Duncan, recorded a second consecutive top five finish. It was a rougher second year for the Jesus-touting, he gets us. Foot washing finished 44th out of 59 rated ads, while Who Is My Neighbor finished 55th. <laughs> a spot for Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s presidential bid, which replays a jingle from his uncle JFK's campaign in 1960, finished last. And I might say deservedly so. That's an editorial. We shouldn't say those. So I take that back. We're at the midway portion of our broadcast, and regular listeners are aware it's at this point that we Uh, move from the local news to a different kind of local news, which is the obituaries and death notices. There are two uh, obituaries in today's Cape Cod Times, dated February 13th of 2024. The first is of Judith B. Fraher of West Barnstable, who passed on February 7th, surrounded by family. A celebration of life will be held in the spring. Any memorial donations may be made to cure... PSP.org. The other obituaries of Judith Rose of Brewster Mass, who at the age of 85, passed on February 9th. Her daughter and son were able to let her know she was loved. She was the beloved wife to Sewell for 58 years. She was raised in Schenectady, New York, and graduated Not Terrace High School. In high school, Judy was a part of a theatrical group that put on shows. She was known for her skills on roller skates. After graduation, Judy worked at GE, where she met and fell in love with Sewell. Summers on Cape Cod, enjoying beach life, boating, and where Judy learned how to fully eat a lobster, including cracking the body open by her father-in-law. Judy and Sewell boldly relocated to San Jose, California, where they enjoyed raising a family and spent time in the Sierras to ski. Retirement brought them back to Cape Cod to golf and cruise to far-off places, including Alaska and Italy. Judy enjoyed making friends wherever she went, and after she had heart surgery, she donated her time to Mended Hearts, assuring other patients that a good life could be had after surgery. A visitation will be held in her honor this Thursday, February fifteenth, from 9.30 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. at Nickerson's Funeral Home. 77 Eldridge Park Way in Orleans. That will be followed by a funeral mass at 11 a.m. at St. Joan of Arc Church, located at 61 Canal Road in Orleans. The burial will conclude at 1.45 p.m. at the Massachusetts National Cemetery on Connery Ave in Buzzards Bay. The funeral mass will be available for viewing online through NickersonFunerals.com. Judy will join Sewell on the National Cemetery under the marker, No Thorns, Just Roses, in plot number 571697. The family would like to extend a special thank you for outstanding care at Broadreach Commons, Liberty Commons, and Cape Cod Hospital. In lieu of flowers, please make a charitable donation to Mended Hearts. And that concludes the obituaries in the Cape Cod Times dated February 13th of 2024. Heading back to the news section, Virginia aims to bolster mental health care. Initiative is part of a national focus after the pandemic by Sarah Rankin of the Associated Press in Richmond, Virginia. John Clare, the police chief of a small Appalachian town in southwest Virginia, spends his days consumed by a growing problem, the frequency with which his officers are tapped to detain, transport, and then wait in hospitals with people in the throes of a mental health crisis. Officers from Claire's 21-member Marion Police Department crisscross the state to deliver patients for court-ordered treatment, sometimes only to discover the hospital where they were sent has no available beds. Patients end up boarding in waiting rooms or emergency rooms, sometimes for days on end, while under the supervision of Claire's officers. It's a problem for law enforcement agencies around Virginia, one that advocates, attorneys, and leaders like Claire say ties up policing resources and it contributes to poor patient outcomes. In the past five years, these types of transports have become the largest single category of case the Marion Department handles. We're against the wall, said Claire, an Army veteran and former lay pastor who sometimes shuttles patients himself. And did so last month on a nearly 15 hour round trip to a coastal city on the other side of the state. The problem underscores a widely held consensus that Virginia's mental health care system is in urgent need of reform due to what Governor Glenn Youngkin's administration says is an over reliance on hospitalization at a time of growing need. About a year ago, Youngkin, a Republican, rolled out an ambitious initiative that aims to transform the way psychiatric care is delivered by creating a system that allows people to get the treatment they need without delay in their own community and not necessarily in the confines of a hospital, easing the burden on both patients and law enforcement. While Virginia's struggles may be particularly acute, Youngkin is not alone in his focus on the issue. Improving mental health care became a priority in the U.S. like never before, as the pandemic brought new levels of isolation, fear, and grief, in addition to pre-existing crises such as rising drug overdose deaths and the struggles burdening teen girls. Survey data from the U.S. Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration found that in 2022, about half of adults with any mental illness did not receive treatment. We know that there's a lot of partisan divide across the country, but what we've found is whether it's red or blue states, There's a lot of support for behavioral health at this point, said Brian Hepburn, executive director of the National Association of State Mental Health Program Directors. Youngkin's emphasis on mental health developed during his 2021 campaign when person after person, from doctors to local officials to police, pleaded with him to make it a priority, according to John Littell, the cabinet secretary overseeing the Virginia Initiative. It was just so clear that people were really struggling, Littell said. Youngkin has since won bipartisan support for his Right Help Right Now initiative and praise from advocates, though some worry about the pace at which things are moving. The governor, whose press office says the initiative is exceeding key milestones, cannot seek a second consecutive term and leaves office in two years. The initiative's wide-ranging goals include building up the behavioral health care workforce and working to stem the tide of overdose deaths, which claim the lives of an average of seven Virginians a day in 2022. Youngkin has signed dozens of related bills into law and has secured hundreds of millions in new funding with more proposed. The foundational part of the plan, as Littell describes it, is creating a system that delivers same-day help to individuals in crisis, which should also relieve some of the burden on police departments like Claire's that are charged with transporting most patients that a court deems a risk to themselves or others. Youngkin's administration hopes to build up that continuum of care by increasing the number of mobile crisis teams with clinicians to respond to mental health emergencies and creating more short-term stabilization centers for patients to avoid the need to take them hours away from their homes for care. A recent report from the state's legislative watchdog emphasized the need. Virginia had more than 20,000 temporary detention orders in fiscal year 2023, according to a recent presentation to lawmakers. Some 8,538 of those individuals experienced delays receiving psychiatric treatment after they'd been deemed an an imminent risk to themselves or others, the report found. The report also raised concerns about law enforcement drop-offs, where officers or sheriff's duty, deputies leave patients before they're accepted by a hospital or other facility. Recent testimony is a in a legislative hearing suggested drop-offs put some of those patients at risk of death. Elsewhere in the U.S., states' policy concerns and approaches to improving mental health care have varied. States have used federal coronavirus pandemic relief funds to bolster access to care, Most governors have talked about mental health in their state-of-the-state addresses in the last few years. Mental health was listed as a budget priority in most states in an analysis by the National Association of the State Budget Officers. Will that emphasis continue? Well, it's a marathon, not a sprint, said Catherine McGuire, Chief Advocacy Officer of the American Psychological Association, and our daily hope is that the state's especially after the public health emergency was rescinded, will realize they have to stay at it. They have to stay at it. They have to stick with it. Virginia's lawmakers are considering bills on the intersection of law enforcement and mental health this year. Claire said he hoped that speaking with Candor about his department's experiences will help them see the urgency of the problem, but he's worried that the part-time General Assembly, also grappling with controversial gambling and sports arena deals, may rush through something that falls short of what's really needed. Investigation continues in megachurch shooting, is our next headline in the Cape Cod Times of February 13th. This is written by Christopher Kahn and Dinah Voiles-Pulver of USA Today. Texas police on Monday continued investigating a shooting at Joel Osteen's megachurch in which off-duty officers killed the assailant while gunfire left the assailant's five-year-old son and another person in critical condition. At approximately 1.53 p.m. local time on Sunday, the unidentified woman, which she has been identified now, wearing a trench coat and a backpack, walked into Lakewood Church and opened fire, said Houston Police Chief Troy Finner at a news conference. She was accompanied by her son, a young child of five years old. Two off-duty officers at the church fatally shot the woman, whose age was estimated between 30 and 35, Finner said. She was confirmed dead at the scene. During the incident, the five-year-old boy was shot in the head and later rushed to Texas Children's Hospital by Houston Fire Department personnel. It's unclear who shot the child, although it's believed it was the two responding officers. A 57-year-old man was also struck by gunfire and later reported to be in critical condition. He has been released from the hospital now. Authorities have not released a motive for the shooting or the names of the assailant and the injured victims. The relationship between the woman and the child she brought with her to church has been identified as mother and son. The gunfire rang out just before a Spanish language service was set to start at the 16,000-seat venue that formerly served as a sports arena. Videos from inside the building showed a frenzy, with many churchgoers running for the exits, while others lay on the floor and took cover beneath their seats. Authorities said the woman claimed that she had a bomb after she was shot. The Houston Police Department's bomb squad searched her vehicle in the backpack and the venue, but found no explosives. Witnesses reported seeing the woman spray some type of substance on the ground before she opened fire, but Houston Fire Chief Samuel Pena said, we haven't found anything that's of concern to our community or to this location. Finner on Sunday said a sweep of the entire church would be conducted to ensure there's no threat. Both off-duty officers have been placed on administrative leave duty, pending the outcome of an internal investigation by their respective agencies, Finner said. At the time of the shooting, one officer, 38 years old with four years of service, worked as an agent for the Texas Alcoholic Beverage Commission. The other, who was 28 years old with two years of service, worked for the Houston Police Department. Osteen, who's one of the highest-profile pastors in the country, presides over services attended by tens of thousands, said the shooting has left him in a fog. Services at the church are regularly attended by 45,000 people every week, making it the third-largest megachurch in the U.S., according to the Hartford Institute for Religion Research. Osteen's televised sermons reach about 100 countries. We've been here 65 years and to have somebody shooting in your church," Osteen said at a news briefing with police. We don't understand why this happened. We're going to pray for that five-year-old boy and pray for the lady that was deceased and her family and all and the other gentlemen. Other people from The Associated Press contributed to that story. Residents brace for Remington's exit. Gunmaking dominates and defines. A New York village by Michael Hill in Elion, New York. That's spelled I L I O N. Remington began here two centuries ago, and generations of workers have turned out rifles and shotguns at the massive firearms factory in the middle of this blue collar village in the heart of New York's Mohawk Valley. Now residents of are bracing for Remington's exit, ending an era that began when Eliphalet Remington, Eli Falet, E-L-I-P-H-A-L-E-T, Eli Phalet. Eli Falet Remington forged his first rifle barrel nearby in 1816. Sorry, folks, I don't know how to say that name. Eli Falet. Never seen it before. The nation's oldest gunmaker recently announced plans to shutter the factory in the company's original home early next month, citing the steep cost of running the historic plant. Remington is consolidating its operations in Georgia, a state the company says is friendlier to the firearms industry. The company's recent history has been marked by a lawsuit after the Sandy Hook School massacre and bankruptcy filings that led to new ownership of the Alain plant, where the workforce has dwindled from around 1,300 workers more than a decade ago to around 300 but the move still stings for the village of 7,600 people who face the prospect of a dramatic revenue loss and a vacant, sprawling factory. When Remington leaves, it's not going to be like a facility leaving. It's going to be like part of your family has moved off, said Jim Conover, who started at Remington in 1964 packing guns and then retired 40 years later as a production manager. Gun making dominates and defines Elyon. It's entwined with the town the way car production is with Detroit. Everyone knows someone who worked at the plant. For some families, jobs there are, particular, are practically a birthright. Conover's father and sons also worked at the plant. Furnace operator and technician Frank Rusty Brown still clocked in there this year with family members. My mom worked there. My dad worked there. My wife works there with me now. My daughter works there with me now. My second daughter works with me now. And my son-in-law works there with me now, said Brown, who's president of the United Mine Workers of America Local 717. So it's a double hit for me and my wife, two of us out of a job. The current owners of Remington Firearms, RemArms, blamed production inefficiencies for the plant closure in a November 30th letter to union officials. They cited the high cost of maintaining and insuring about a million square feet of space in multiple buildings, many dating to World War I. Rem Arms added that Georgia offered an environment that better supports and welcomes the firearms industry. CEO Ken Darcy also said in a news release that the industry was concerned about the legislative environment in New York. Some believe Remington is primarily shifting to the South to reduce labor and operational costs. But in a stretch of upstate New York where support for gun rights tends to be strong, some Republican elected officials seized on the company's comment about Georgia. They linked the plant closure to gun control measures championed by New York City-area Democrats in recent years. Remington's not the first firearms maker to commit to a more gun-friendly state, Smith and Wesson opened its new Tennessee headquarters in October after being based in Springfield, Massachusetts since 1852. In announcing the move in 2021, company officials criticized proposed state legislation they said would prohibit them from manufacturing certain weapons. REM Arms, which bought the firearms business in 2020, did not respond to emails and calls seeking comment. The company said in its letter to the union, it expects to end facility operations around March 4th. The company previously announced in 2021 it was moving its headquarters to LaGrange, Georgia, and would open a factory and research operation there. Empty spaces dominate the factory's big parking lot. Nearby businesses delivering lunches to the plant, like Franco's Pizza, already have seen orders fall. They've been dwindling down, Franco's owner Daniel Mendez said. This is not necessarily going to put us out of business, but it does hurt. With a fraction of its past workforce, Remington leaves a lion with more of a whimper than a bang. Stevens believes the remaining workers will be able to find other work in the area. Local officials hope the plant site can host a mix of manufacturing, retail, and residential units, but its fate remains unclear. It was listed for sale last month for $10 million. Things can become an eyesore quickly, said Michael Desotel, historian at Elion's Public Library. And being in the center of the village like that, you can't just let it go. The present factory site dates to 1828, when Elifalat Remington located his operations along the recently opened Erie Canal. Though guns historically have been Elion's prime product, Remington also made typewriters, sewing machines, and other consumer items. Cerberus Capital Management purchased Remington Arms in 2007, placing it in the same corporate family as Bushmaster Firearms and other gun companies. Bushmaster Firearms moved manufacturing operations to Elion for a time in 2011. Remington Outdoor Company and its subsidiaries filed for bankruptcy protection in 2018, citing slumping sales as well as legal and financial pressure after the Sandy Hook school shooting that killed 20 first graders and six adults. A Bushmaster AR-15 style rifle was used in the massacre. Family members of victims and a survivor of the shooting who filed a 2015 lawsuit against Remington settled in 2022 for $73 million. A second bankruptcy filing was made in July of 2020. Within months, 545 workers at the Allian plant were laid off. The company's assets were divided at auction. A judge approved Vista Outdoors' $81.4 million bid for Remington's ammunition and accessories businesses. The Alliant plant went to a group of investors called the Roundhill Group as part of a $13 million bid. The mayor said there'll be hard decisions ahead, but he's confident the site will be used again. And while Remington might leave, he said the connection can never be totally severed. Even when they are finally 100% no longer involved in the village of Elion in any way, shape, or form, we're still going to be known for this, Stephen said. Madagascar law would castrate child rapists, reads our next headline, by Sarah Titoed of the Associated Press in Antananarivo, Madagascar. Madagascar's parliament has passed a law allowing for the chemical and, in some cases, surgical castration of those found guilty of the rape of a minor, prompting criticism from international rights groups, but also finding support from activists in the country who say it's an appropriate deterrent to curb a rape culture. Parliament in the Indian Ocean Island nation of 28 million passed the law February 2nd, and the Senate, the upper house, approved it last week. It must now be ratified by the High Constitutional Court and signed into law by President Andre Rajoelina, who first raised the issue in December. His government proposed the law change. Justice Minister Landy Mbolatiana, Randria Manantenasoa said it's a necessary move because of an increase in cases of rape against children. In 2023, 600 cases of the rape of a minor were were recorded, she said, and there have already been 133 in January this year. Madagascar is a sovereign country which has the right to modify its laws in relation to circumstances and in the general interest of the people, she said. The current penal code has not been enough to curb the perpetrators of these offenses. Surgical castration will always be pronounced for those guilty of raping a child under the age of 10, according to the law's wording. Cases of rape against children between the ages of 10 and 13 will be punished by surgical or chemical castration. The rape of minors aged between 14 and 17 will be punished by chemical castration. Offenders also now face sterner sentences of up to life in prison, as well as castration. We wanted to protect children much more. The younger the child, the greater the punishment, Rondria Manantonosa said. Chemical castration is the use of drugs to block hormones and decrease sexual desire. It's generally reversible by stopping the drugs. Surgical castration is a permanent procedure. Several countries and some U.S. states, including California and Florida, allow for chemical castration for some sex offenders. Surgical castration as a punishment is much rarer, and the use of both is highly contentious. Madagascar's new law was criticized by Rights Group Amnesty International as inhuman and degrading treatment that was inconsistent with the country's constitutional laws. The law should rather focus on protecting victims, said Enkiko Va Enkiko, an advisor for Madagascar at Amnesty. On the island, complaint procedures and trials are not carried out anonymously, he said. There's a lack of confidence in the Malagasy criminal justice system due to opacity and corruption, and reprisals against rape victims are frequent. However, the law does not combat these factors. He added that surgical castration was a problematic criminal sentence if anyone who underwent it was later exonerated of a crime on appeal. He also raised doubts over the capabilities of medical authorities to carry out the procedures. But amid the criticism, some activists in Madagascar agree with the change in the law because nothing else seems to be working. There really is a rape culture in Madagascar, said Jessica Lolaniria Nivoseño of the Women Break the Silence group, which campaigns against rape and supports victims. We're in the process of normalizing certain cases of sexual violence, also minimizing the seriousness of these cases. The new law is progress because it's a deterrent punishment. This could prevent potential attackers from taking action, but only if we as citizens are aware of the existence and importance of this new penalty. And we will finish up our reading today of the Cape Cod Times, dated today, Tuesday, February 13th of 2024, with some Ask Carolyn advice. When and whether it's okay to weigh in uninvited on a friend's relationship. Dear Carolyn, someone I'm close to recently had a major relationship disagreement with their partner. They only disclosed the disagreement to me after it had been resolved, quote unquote, with their partner, never directly asked for my input on the disagreement. I have some questions as to whether the disagreement was actually resolved in a fair way, or whether this person just kind of decided to live with their partner's version of the disagreement. But my thought is that generally speaking, People shouldn't weigh in on someone else's relationship unless directly asked. Do you agree with that premise? Signed, say something, question mark. Say something, there's always this. Are you asking me what I think, or are you just sharing? When the moment has passed, you can go back to it with, I was thinking about what you told me the other day. Were you asking my opinion, or just sharing? I erred on the side of shutting up, but it occurred to me that I might not have been helpful. As for your premise, I generally agree on shutting up, but it's okay to account for human variety. Some people will ask directly when they want something, and some won't. Some think they don't want your opinion, but they really do, and some think they want your opinion, but they really don't. The way to navigate any doubt is to ask what would be most helpful to them, and then don't press it. Dear Carolyn, I'm allergic, so I never grew up with dogs, never got excited by them, or any pet, really, not to pick on dogs. My husband grew up with dogs, his whole family have dogs, except for us. I take an allergy pill when I visit, their house, their dog, their rules. I just found out that they asked to bring the dogs when they come to visit, for the day and overnight, and husband had said no, citing my allergy and not wanting dog hair in our house. I appreciate him looking out for me, but I'm feeling like the naysayer in something that's totally normal for them. Is there any compromise that still keeps dog hair out of my house? Thanks, signed Allergic. Dear Allergic, this system is working perfectly. One, you're not a naysayer. You have a physical condition that rules out dogs in your house. Two, you're already compromising by taking a pill and visiting their dog hairy homes. And three, Your husband gets that and is standing up for you. The only problem here is that you see this as a problem. I guess I'm wondering why you still feel like the bad guy, as if you need to apologize. Is anyone in his family giving you a hard time? Besides continuing to ask whether they can bring their dogs when they know you're allergic, which is rude, if that's what they're doing. Carolyn No one is giving me a hard time. In fact, they're all so lovely about it, and virtually everything else, I want to make sure I'm seeing all options, and not just the no-dogs version, since that's been my life up until now. I will simply count my blessings. And with that very good advice, we have come to the end of our reading of the Cape Cod Times, dated today, Tuesday, February 13th of 2024. This is your reader, Eric, saying be well. Be safe. Stay warm. Stay off the roads today and the sidewalks. If you can help it, remember our veterans. Look after each other. Bye for now.